The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So I thought what might be nice for the beginning of our class on the seven factors of awakening, you know how it is, uh, maybe some of you remember when you were a kid and <clears throat> you were the person selecting who was going to be on your team, you know, whether it was kickball or whatever it was going to be. And, uh, you know, generally there was those you liked, but in generally you're looking for certain skill sets. <laughs> People who can actually kick the ball or catch the ball or throw the ball or whatever. So how about this for reflection, just to use our imagination? Like, if we had the opportunity to select, to choose, you know, seven, let's just say, qualities of the mind. Now you could think, well, I'm going to choose the seven factors because I want the Buddha to think I'm good. (laughs) But like, really just qualities that you see in other people, whatever name you give to them, qualities you see in yourself, qualities you definitely wouldn't want as part of your repertoire. What qualities would you like in your mind, at your disposal, through all the twists and turns of life? What would you like? So just take a moment and think about You know, and it might be that you need a phrase to talk about each quality more, you know, it isn't enough to say one word. And people online, you can even share some in the chat. I'll read it out loud. People in the room, you can just say a sentence or a word. I'll repeat it so that people can hear it online. What qualities would you want? I know one thing that came to my mind right away is, like, I'd want to be, I'm not sure what the right word is, but unflappable, immune from being pushed around by my own... (laughs) You know, the monsters I create myself or what goes on around me. How about others? We have 13 online already. 14. (laughs) I'll read some online and then we'll get some from the people in the room. Calm, peaceful happiness, rock solid. Patience, perspective. Clarity, kindness, courage, integrity, courage, clear-mindedness, insightful, spacious, willpower, steadiness, in the eye of the storm, maybe, Um, grace, regard for all life, confidence, steadiness, ease, patience, playful, lighthearted, trusted by others, spontaneity, sense of humor, ease, kindness, patience, calmness, truthful, Peaceful, clarity, playful, humor, balance, to have clarity of mind, laughter, fun, 
compassion, calm, equanimity, curiosity, fluid, truthful, wisdom, perspective, humor, acceptance, oozing warmth, content, equanimous, gratitude, sincerity, empathetic, curiosity, concentration, equanimity. Just call out in the room. Anything that you didn't hear yet that you want to add? Yes. Contentment. Friendliness. The ability to let go. Present moment awareness. Compassion. Love. And we could go on, and obviously a lot of these qualities overlap with each other. But what's of real interest, of course, is like, what do we, given that we have some, seems like wholesome desire to have certain qualities available, alive and well, resilient, in the sense that they keep showing up, you know, keep being there for each moment that we're meeting at you know, the next thing. And then the question is, well, how, how, I mean, is it just random or is it like the Buddha teaches, or are these things conditional? When the supporting conditions are there, then this quality comes, arises operates as long as the supporting causes are there for it. And then when they're not, then that quality fades or falls away. Same with the unwholesome too, right? And in the tradition, the way that's talked about is feeding and starving. I love these, you know, it's just such a easy to understand simile. Because we can ask ourselves, like, what mental qualities am I feeding and which... Or am I, am I starving? And some of you will recognize this as the fourth foundation of mindfulness that we study in uh, Buddhist <coughs> studies. I forget when the next class on the four foundations will be, but it's been a while, so I think it's coming up in the next year or so. And the fourth foundation, sometimes it's translated as mindfulness of mental qualities. But it's we're actually... Uh, using mindfulness to recognize the qualities and the easy way, you know, those qualities which hinder presence and those qualities which support and empower presence, amplified power of mindful awareness. And seven factors on the wholesome side and on the unwholesome side, side the, one of the unwholesome lists, of course, is the five hindrances of wanting, not wanting, too much energy, restlessness, worry, too little energy, sleepiness, dullness of mind, and doubt is the fifth one. And uh, so for our homework today, uh, this week, what I'd recommend first is to memorize the list of seven factors. And uh, just throughout the day, you know, at least a handful of times during the day, if not 10 or 20 times during the day, 
just run through the list. And each time, you know, you, you bring mindfulness to mind, then just check your mind. And it's also okay to check, it will be imperfect. I mean, even checking your own mind will be imperfect. But you could also check the minds of those around you if you're with other people. Like, do you detect, do you sense that mindfulness is operating in the minds of the people around you? And we're clarifying, each time we do that, we're clarifying, like, what do I think mindfulness is? What am I looking for? Right? So don't expect that you know you're kind of, we're in this fumbling stage, but a refinement will happen, both because of the study, but also because of the checking. And then you go, take a few seconds, and then you check, okay, the Buddha talks about, you know, the the long term is investigation of dhammas, (laughs) or you could just say interest. But it's, it's a particular kind of interest. We're not interested in the latest celebrity news. We're, we're interested in what's here and now. Like, you could even say the mystery, like what is yet not clearly seen or understood that's here and now, that's relevant. I like to say sometimes to myself, whether I know it or not, this is what my heart is actually interested in. So is there an interest in what my heart is naturally interested in that's here and now? Because the opposite would be a kind of chronic dismissing of the present moment or what's here and now because this isn't it. This is what I want. This isn't the moment I'm looking for. Later, when I'm done with this class and I'm home, you know, and I get to have some chips or, you know, whatever we think. So, uh, is there interest? What would interest look like now? Am I doing it in a contrived way to try to be a good Buddhist study student? Or is that real interest, real Dhamma Vichaya? You know, that, that mind that is naturally, and it's not even, you know, a lot of times when we hear the word interest or investigation, we think of like penetrating into something, focusing on something. But it's much more about letting something reveal itself, letting the present moment, the nature of experience, the nature of the mind, the nature of suffering, the nature of freedom. But the nature of something gets to reveal itself. So it interest, investigation, is much more about that willingness to let what's here and now reveal itself. So it's patient, it's bright, but it's also not controlling, it's not uh, acting out some agenda because it it wants it to reveal itself, it wants to see it as it actually is. And then you bring to mind energy, persistence is another word that translates the Pali. Because when we are awake, reflectively aware, and we realize, oh, there's something to be interested in here, then to the degree that interest is following the thread of what's actually interesting to interest, then this quality of persistence or energy arises. You know, 
the heart, the mind is willing to be steadfast. I really, I want to see where this interest goes. And that steadfastness, that persistence, causes the mind, the heart, to have to drop all of whatever else it would be doing. Worrying, planning, wondering if this is a waste of time. And so the mind starts to unify and starts to experience the flow. Life experience, the mind is always a flow. And and you can even hold the possibility, right? Always a frictionless flow. Because nature, I mean, it just makes sense intellectually that nature is just doing what nature does. And so when we're really committed, really loyal to our interest and our mindful presence, letting the present moment reveal itself, and really because of the steadfastness, the commitment, the energy that we're bringing to that, there's a unity, you know, the mind starts to gather and gets unified, and some joy arises. It's the, the joy arises because of, basically the mind is no longer, to some degree at least, tying itself into knots with its worrying and its comparing and its normal cognitive activity, because it's unified in this interest in the present moment. And so there's that lightness, that buoyant, bright quality that starts to arise. One of my teachers, uh, Saito Tejaniya, he says, really as a practitioner, we're mostly just doing the mindfulness, the investigation or interest, and the persistence. And then we're noticing how these other factors then just start to show up. There is the lightness of joy or rapture. There is the ease of tranquility of body and mind. There is the stillness, the silence, the steadiness of concentration. There is that beautiful balance, that resonant balance. It's a beautiful feeling, surprisingly, balance, even though it's, in a sense, even. But it's peaceful. Equanimity is the seventh factor. So I think this would be really great, and I'm going to try to do it as well, um, you know, several times. And so what I would do it, I would do it at least a couple times when you're sitting, you know, whether you're a hour sitter in the morning or 20 minutes, you have 20 minutes to sit or you sit in the evening. But during your formal sitting time, however you like to sit, at some point, just bring to mind the seven factors. And take a few seconds with each one. So it's, you're kind of like the word and your understanding of the word is a, a bit of an intervention in your mind stream. And you want to notice your, that word that you're bringing up and your interest in that word, what that word means to you. What does it do to the mind stream? When you think about briefly think about mindfulness and what that word points to, what the Buddha says about that. But you don't have to regurgitate a lot of thought, you know, but you might want 
to say a few things to yourself, or it just might arise, that information might just be there when you bring each of the seven factors to mind. So whatever that is, you know, 10 to 30 seconds per factor. But then no, just notice, make sure without any thinking, just notice if anything's changed simply by remembering joy or remembering tranquility. So do it a few times during each sit, and then try to do it, a, you know, at least a couple times, if not five to ten times during the day. It won't take long, just a couple minutes. And just to kind of encourage us, you know, in the, at the time of the Buddha, when the nuns, when the monks would get sick, <laughs> you know, they didn't have a lot of medicine, but one thing they would do is ask one of their monastic colleagues to chant the teachings on the seven factors of awakening. It was considered a kind of medicine. And I've noticed this on retreat. You know, I haven't done it so much in daily life, um, you know, except when I'm teaching it. Uh, but on retreat, I will work with the seven factors. And it's, it's almost like, oh, that seems a little too magical. But there's, it's, it's lawful. It really matters what we bring to mind. <laughs> and if you're going to bring something to mind, why not bring to mind what a really wise person says, that when these qualities are present, the mind gravitates to nibbana, to freedom, to release. Right? It kind of makes sense. It's not that the Buddha said it, it's that the Buddha really understood the mind pretty well. So these are natural capacities of our mind. And it's like, uh, it really, it's a karmic act, what we bring to mind, meaning it has effects. So when we bring any of these seven factors to mind, and here's a little, another little piece that we'll unpack over the, the weeks. You know, we often talk about like I just did, the seven factors in a linear way and how understanding mindfulness really supports investigation and how investigation really supports the arising of persistence and how that persistence, that committedness, really supports the arising of joy and that presence of joy leads to the tranquility and the tranquility allows the mind, like a snow globe, you know, everything settles. When we have that ease of the mind and heart and body, everything settles. So what's left is stillness, that space of concentration, which allows that beautiful balance to, it, it almost, it's not that it wasn't there, but it, it becomes apparent, that capacity of being unflappable. It's interesting because it's so soft, but it is a little bit like somebody had one of those qualities, I forget their words, but it's something like solid rock, right? But there is something really firm about equanimity when it's strong, but it's, it's not fixed, but it, it has a solidity to it, like the heart can, the mind can handle anything. Nothing's going to shake the equanimity. It doesn't mean we're not touched, but we're okay being touched. 
So, uh, yeah, there's something potent about bringing these factors to mind. And I, if, if nothing else, it would be nice by the end of the eight weeks to have some confidence, like this is a go-to thing. And then you can even use it as a kind of um, mental health intervention when there's a lot of you know, just negativity in your mind or doubt or a kind of a depressive affect or whatever is sort of weighing your heart down, you might just want to plant yourself somewhere or do it during a walk, take a walk somewhere, and then just keep moving through the seven factors, each one remembering that this is a natural capacity of this heart. It's not theoretical, it's actual. And remembering it, bringing it to mind, is how it grows. Caring about it, appreciating it, recognizing that each of the seven factors are wholesome in the sense of being onward leading to insight and freedom. And just being a better human being. Right? So it's like good in all ways. And then just see like what does that intervention set in motion for you? And it's not just the seven factors, but, you know, for this course we'll start here, but I would do this with other teachings and chants that you like, memorize them, and then use them as mental health interventions for yourself and see if it helps. Because the, the Buddhist teachings, when they're used correctly, they're very empowering, right? The Buddhist teachings are meant to lead us in the direction of independence, not in the direction of being dependent on a teacher or even on teachings. doesn't mean we give up on teachers and teachings, but we're sensing a deepening, widening independence that the Dhamma, the understanding, and the capacity to keep deepening the understanding, the tools... It's all here. And when we do get teachings, you know, one of the ways we start to experience that independence, we hear a really good Dharma talk or read a really good chapter in a Dharma book. And the actual experience is, as we're reading, it's like we're so grateful, but it, at the same time we realize, oh yeah, I know that. I've experienced that. Oh yeah, that's true in my experience too. Right? Do you know that experience? And that's, that's so empowering. It's like, oh, the Buddha's teaching me what I already know. And it's just that you, this is a real cause for rapture to arise sometimes. We just are, the heart is literally at times overjoyed that we're not alone. That what we're experiencing is real. Like the, the Buddha saying it, it's like confirms, oh yeah. That's really happening. Something's alive in my life. I'm not just circling the toilet, <laughs> you know, into a dismal future. Because it's very easy to imagine that human existence is just a struggle that we just try to survive as best we can and not, you know, cause as little harm as possible. But it's basically miserable. And there is a lot of misery, clearly. 
And that's why it's so provocative when someone like the Buddha says there's an end to suffering. And in terms of this particular set of teachings, he says, when these seven factors are recognized and brought into balance, you probably sense the first three, not mindfulness, but then the next three, investigation, energy, joy, they're enlivening energizing factors. And the next three, tranquility, concentration, equanimity, are calming factors, tranquilizing factors. So they do need to keep in balance. One of the suttas maybe we'll look at, the Buddha says, you know, if you have a lot of restlessness, right, that wiry, anxious feeling going strong in your body and mind, that's probably not the time to emphasize investigation, energy, and joy. Rapture, even strong states of joy, can be unpleasant in a funny way. It's like, it's too much energy, you know? And it's just, it's not that it's bad, but it's out of balance. What we need is that ease of tranquility and the stillness of concentration and that peaceful balance of equanimity. And when we're dull or sleepy, that's not the time to emphasize tranquility, concentration, and equanimity, right? It's it's like uh, one, a lot of people kind of roll their eyes when they hear about the Mahasi style of practice where you're being asked to mentally note, right? Put a label on whatever the predominant experience is. So every few seconds, thinking, you know, thinking is being known. Or it might be more specific, planning mind is being known. Aching, aching, throbbing, pinching, pinching is being known. Right? You just keep, and it's like, oh, that would drive me crazy. But it's true, if you're a restless type, it drives you crazy. But if you're dull, and you ask your mind to generate a mental note, a label, what at whatever frequency seems helpful, you'll see you start having more energy, because making effort energizes the mind. So that's one of the things to play with. Like in your sit, when you're going through the list a couple of times, then as you assess your own state, more on the restless side, more on the dull side, then spend a little bit more time with the balancing factors and see, like what I said before, like see what that repeating and thinking about the seven factors, what that does to the mind, and then emphasizing the opposite factors, given the general tone of your mind, does it bring more balance? So that's a fun way to play with it. And, and you can even do this with friends, if they're willing, you know, not in a contrived or obnoxious way, of course, but, you know, in a sincere way where you're actually, you have that capacity, you know the person well enough, you sense them, you know, well enough in the moment that you cannot maybe go through the list in some systematic way, but like mirroring back your friend's capacity for joy, helping them remember, yeah, you have this capacity or to be relaxed and tranquil or to be balanced. 
right? I'm sure we've done that with our friends, haven't you? And it can be really impactful when a good a good friend is a little out of balance or suffering in some way, and in some appropriate way, not contrived, not forced, we just mirror back some of the capacities we know that they have, so we speak with confidence. And we help them remember, yeah, that's right, my heart is capable of being balanced. I remember that. Because remembering these wholesome qualities is how they get strengthened. It's like, you can't bring kindness to mind, you know, it's not one of the seven factors, but it's a good example of this. You know, we can't really remember, actually remember the experience of kindness without changing our mind. Which is why it's so potent when your mind is overrun by anger. And it doesn't, it's not about like bringing kindness or love to the person or the thing you're angry at. It doesn't matter. However you can bring love to mind, remember that your heart has that capacity, that your heart actually does have a tender spot for something, someone. It, it, it's a powerful intervention to the anger storm that might be operating in the moment. It changes things. Because that vortex of anger, it exists in a universe where there's no kindness. Anger only makes sense in a universe where there's no kindness. So that mind, there's no kindness in that mind that's really identified with anger. Because they don't coexist. And the more we understand this, and the more we have enough space, which is really the fruit of practice and especially equanimity, that just that sense of space, we still, you know, will get anger will get triggered, defensiveness, lust, you know, all the unwholesome qualities will get triggered. But because of that confidence in that space, there's there's like a room for wisdom to operate. And, you know, there's so there's the vortex of anger, but there's some space around the anger, just enough, so my, the mind, wisdom, could say, oh, this really hurts, and I care about that. Or, my cat's sitting at home, and I care about my cat, you know? Or, I have a nice house that my partner and I have put some time into, and I really appreciate the goodness of that effort to give myself a safe, comfortable place. And it's about, you know, changing the channel. And that's probably why in the tradition, chanting these, because, you know, when we're overwhelmed, like we're in the dying process or have a terrible illness, and a friend comes and chants, the chants on the, you know, basically the Buddhist teachings on the seven factors, and we're hearing about each of the factors, well, it's hard, you know, and especially if the person is really sincere, their heart's really there, and even as they're chanting about mindfulness or energy or tranquility, they're remembering it themselves. So there's a bit of a, like I was saying before, with the Buddhist teachings that the proximate cause for developing the seven factors is a a good spiritual friend. 
because there's this uh, sympathetic resonance. So when they're bringing it to mind, they're touching into their own confidence that this these factors are good, that they're real, that they're available, then it's hard for us not to be affected by that. So, one more thing with homework. So, we're going to memorize the list of seven. We're going to bring them up in our sets and in daily life. Notice how it changes the heart and mind going forward, like what kind of intervention was it? What was the effect, positive, negative? And then, you know, we just have seven weeks. So, in terms of study and in terms of emphasis, Take some time, you know, and you can do this. Don't feel like you have to be in a samadhi pose. You can just be sitting in a comfortable chair or walking. But spend some good time, you know, like 20 minutes just contemplating sati, mindfulness, mindful awareness. What is your understanding? And you're using your own mind, your own present moment experience as a laboratory what here in the present moment is this awareness that the Buddha is talking about with the word sati. And I'll just mention before we end, this comes from, I think, an excellent book that Joseph wrote not that long ago, Mindfulness, a Practical Guide to Awakening. And it's Joseph Goldstein's teachings on the Satipatthana Sutta, the Discourse on Mindfulness, the Foundations of Mindfulness. And this is the chapter where Joseph's talking about mindfulness. And he, he quotes a, a Pali scholar who, you know, looked at all the ways that in the suttas and even in the Abhidhamma, the commentaries that happened after the time of the Buddha, um, how sati, that word, is used. And he, he divides it into four that I think might be useful just to hear. So as you're investigating in your own experience, what is mindfulness or what is awareness? That capacity we have to be aware that this is being known. So we're, in a sense, knowing what the mind is knowing or knowing what consciousness is conscious of. We're aware, reflectively aware. You know, if we if it was okay to use the word self, which we generally avoid in Buddhism, we would say self-aware, because right? we're aware of what the mind is knowing, what the mind is doing. The mind is always knowing, but are we aware of what the mind is knowing, what the mind is doing? So that's my, that's my thing on mindfulness, but he divides it into these four qualities of mindfulness, not forgetting, presence of mind, remembering, and its close association with wisdom. So I want to talk about each of these four just to help unpack. And this could be something that you share in the small group. I mean, besides the experiences that I talked about in terms of homework, just repeating the seven factors, just any deepening sense of what mindfulness is in real time for you how you've observed it as a quality, an active quality in your mind. 
What is that experience of mindfulness, mindful awareness? So one, traditionally, is this not forgetting. So in practice, it's like knowing what I want to keep in mind. And generally, you know, we immediately want to think, oh yeah, keep the meditation object in mind. But actually, the meditation object is always, in our practice at least, in the service of being present. Or in some concentration practices, in the service of unifying the mind. But let's just talk about it in terms of wisdom practice or vipassana practice, where we're interested in deepening insight, deepening understanding. Then what we're keeping in mind is the present moment. And so if we use the breath, for example, it's because the breath supports keeping the present moment in mind. So this is the not forgetting part of mindfulness. And it leads to, you know, when we can really keep, like we did in the guided sit tonight, keep that experience, oh yeah, sitting, yeah, there's sitting, the body is sitting. I'm keeping it in mind, keeping it in mind. And you'll start to feel some of that stability of non-distractedness. When we are keeping it in mind with some unwavering, like no gaps, because we're keeping it in mind. So that's one aspect of what we mean by sati, mindfulness. The other one Joseph calls presence of mind, and that's I like to think of that more like a mirror. There's something uh, solid and unmovable about mindfulness. Like as long as it's being recognized we notice mindfulness doing its job in, in a kind of unshakable way. And what does it do? It just reflects. It knows what's being known. And you maybe you had moments during the guided sit when you were aware, you know, you, you were keeping in mind sitting was happening. And there was a, there was a, a kind of solidity and an effortlessness to that. Because one point that Gil Fonstel makes, you know, he's a wonderful Dharma teacher, but he's also uh, a Buddhist scholar, you know, has a PhD from Stanford in Buddhist studies, so he knows the uh, the Pali language and the, the suttas, you know, he's done a lot of study. And he makes this really important point about mindfulness, that it isn't something we do, and he likens it to faith. You know, he would say, okay, I'm going to do faith <laughs> or I'm going to do confidence. No, it's something we recognize. Oh, I have a lot of confidence. There's a lot of faith. Oh, there's awareness, right? It's something we recognize, we can appreciate, but we don't really do the mindfulness. And this has been a bit of a revolution in our Western early Buddhist tradition because of Venerable Analyo and others, you know, the, the Satipatthana Sutta, which is the Buddha's discourse on mindfulness, the four foundations of mindfulness, it's not really about what to be mindful of. Oh, I should be, I'm going to put my mindfulness there. No, no, it's what we do to support mindfulness, to strengthen it. But we don't actually do the mindfulness. We do practices 
that reveal mindfulness, that strengthen mindfulness, but we don't do the mindfulness exactly, like we, I think, superficially think sometimes. And I think this is what this second point of presence of mind is really pointing to. There's a kind of presence, and the way you'll sense that is like, oh yeah, that awareness is here, often forgotten, but when remembered, it has that sort of unflappable, like a mirror is just going to reflect whatever happens in front of it. It doesn't exhaust the mirror at all. So that capacity of the mind to be mindfully aware, it just needs to be remembered or recognized. And then the third is uh, this remembering, and and it, it actually means like how mindfulness supports memory. And how it shows up in our practices, and Joseph makes this point about hiri otapa, just moral sensitivity, because having been, having cultivated mindfulness by recognizing it, as opposed to doing it, oh yeah, so then memory's better. And what does memory remember? Well, it remembers what's skillful and unskillful, because it isn't theoretical, it's just from tracking. Oh yeah, when I related that way, I got myself in a real mess, and it was painful for a long time. And when I related this other way, things worked really well, and my heart was light and free, and that was great. So when we're practicing, and we're in a similar situation to something that happened previously, Because of mindfulness, there's a remembering. Oh yeah, this is like that. Best to abandon (laughs) this tendency in the mind. Do not act this out. You'll be in trouble. Or, oh yeah, I remember this. This is a really wholesome quality. This sets good in motion. Onward and upward, you know, go for it. No reason to refrain. And then the last quality is this... uh, Aspect. That's why often when we're teaching, um, when I'm teaching and just even in our own practice, we, we often think of mindfulness with wisdom. Because mindfulness, the presence of mindfulness allows wisdom, the discerning, the clear comprehending, the understanding of cause and effect, this, what's the supporting cause for suffering, what's the supporting cause for release, that deepening of understanding of the nature of suffering and the nature of release is that working together of that discerning. Like the discerning is is like mindfulness supports the collecting of data and then wisdom is that part of the mind that lets data, the cumulative data, tell a story that maybe challenges an old story, right? And and then takes over that old story. Because this story is more compelling. Because it has fresh data, cleaner data. So that's how they, just to see that deepening of understanding or any learning, even kind of more superficial learning, like learning the best way to chop garlic. You know, just to see that how that 
ability to be reflectively aware really helps the mind deepen its understanding about how to do this task. They work together. So again, those four qualities, not forgetting, presence of mind, um, remembering, and close association with wisdom. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.